in the book of Acts, part four. If I had to put a title on today, it'd be Tradition, Pride, and Complacency. I want to pick our story back up at the conversion of Saul. Saul of Tarsus in Acts 9 here. We're going to pick it up at verse 9, reading down through verse 22. Then we've got to take a field trip to the book of Galatians to see about, as Paul Harvey would say, the rest of the story. Anybody else here miss Paul Harvey? I miss Paul Harvey. Last week we learned lessons about ourselves provided by the actions of the words of Ananias, as he did what he was instructed to do by Jesus concerning Saul. Today we're going to talk a little about tradition, a little about pride, a little bit about our own complacency. Acts 9 and 19. And taking food, he, Saul, was strengthened. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Amen? Oh, ho, oh, oh. ho. Yeah. Lovely. It appears as though I still had the printer on page, print on both sides and didn't put page numbers on my message. So this should be very interesting today. Not only that, I gave it to Heather to kind of catch up on some stuff, so there's no telling what order this is in. Well, we'll just have to try to figure it out. So Saul, after his conversion experience, immediately goes to the people that he came as a representative of now, he came what we would consider as a traveling prosecutor, as it were. And now he goes to these same people and tells them, hey, I was mistaken. I was wrong. He says, I have switched teams. I'm about to be the lead defense lawyer for Jesus. And the people you and I were persecuting are correct and we are wrong. Now, that would be some pretty stunning news, wouldn't it? Yeah. Just imagine, guys, if there you are, sitting at the table, and your wife comes in and she goes, I just want to tell you, I was completely wrong. Yeah. I'd be like, what? <laughs> Somebody get a calendar out. Let's write this down. So these guys were stunned. Mm. Well, you know, sometimes I wonder how anyone can change their stripes, as it were, that remarkably, that profoundly. There seems to be no physical explanation for it, and that's because it's a spiritual thing that happens. There is no physical explanation. It's a spiritual transformation. I want to read something out of the Message Bible here. 2 Corinthians 5, or 5 and 15. It says, He included everyone in his death so that everyone could also be included in his life. A resurrected life, a far better life than people ever lived on their own. Can I get a witness of that? Because of this decision, we don't evaluate people by what they have or how they look. We look at the Messiah that way once and got it all wrong. As you know, we certainly don't look at him that way anymore. Now we look inside. 
And what we see is that anyone united with the Messiah gets a fresh start, is created new. The old life is gone, a new life begins. Look at it. All this comes from God who settled the relationship between us and him and then called us to settle our relationships with each other. Can I get a witness? God put the world square within himself through the Messiah, giving the world a fresh start by offering forgiveness of sins. God has given us the task of telling everyone what he is doing. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and the new has begun. Amen? Saul starts his new job and his new life as the Christian defense attorney, and he does so with saying probably the one thing that the Jews, the prosecution, hated absolutely the most. Saul said, Jesus is the Christ. He is the Son of God. <laughs> you see, the Jews could deal with a lot of stuff about Jesus, but it was that one claim that infuriated them the most, his claim to be the Messiah. Now, Bible scholars will tell you there's anywhere between 47 and uh, 300 uh, prophecies concerning Jesus in the Old Testament. That means anybody who'd been going to temple regularly or been under any rabbinic teaching should have heard about the coming Messiah, and they had. It was just that they had become more interested in keeping the traditions of the law than looking for the lawmaker. And we need to be careful with that too, because who are we supposed to be looking for now? That's right. Thank you, Pete. The returning of the Messiah. Only he's going to come back as a lion, amen? And it could be any day. Let us not get complacent in thinking it's not going to happen because Jesus is coming back. Now, they had become interested in keeping the traditions of the law rather than looking for the lawmaker. Isaiah said this about them. He said, go tell the people. Be ever hearing but never understanding, ever seeing but never perceiving. Make the heart of the people callous. Make their ears dull, their eyes closed. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, turn and be healed. Then Jesus came and fulfilled that prophecy. He says, this is why I speak to them in parable. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. In them is fulfilled Isaiah's prophecy. You will be ever hearing but never understanding, ever seeing but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I will heal them. Man, I'm going to tell you, that's some sad stuff. Because the other thing about the coming of the Messiah, he says, he will give many a great delusion. Those who have not already said yes to his son will get a great delusion. And they will be just like these people here. They will see but not understand. They will hear and not understand. And they will be caught up in the great delusion. Mm. The majority of the Jewish people were caught up in this. They had let tradition, pride, and complacency get in their way of seeing the truth of their own word. Jesus says in Mark 7, and he says to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? And it is written, These people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Ouch. That hurts. In vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines, the commands of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. He said, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish 
your own traditions. Mm. Jesus' own fight against traditions rather than engaging in relationships should be an eye-opener to us that we don't fall into that same trap. Colossians 2 says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty to deceit according to human tradition. This topic of tradition came up in the Lunch and Learn. You know, we started talking about tradition can be good, but how many traditions do we have? We have a number of traditions in this church. We did a number of them this morning, right? We said the Lord's Prayer. We take the Lord's Supper, right? We sing um, Sanctuary, thank you very much. We sing the Call to the Water. You know, all these things are traditions that we have. We do the shake and bake, you know. The thing is, all of these things can be done occasionally or not done at all, excluding the Lord's Supper, and it should not change our view of the Lord. We don't do them, or we, I should say, we don't have to do them to worship the Lord, but we do them in a sense of worshiping the Lord. It is part of how we come to his table, how we come to his throne, how we get involved with him. But that doesn't mean if we don't do them any longer that we still can't. We still can. The Lord hasn't changed. We are the ones who have changed. Mm. The only way we can get in trouble is we take those specific traditions and we begin to look for them instead of looking for the Lord so that when we come to church, we check our little box. Yes, we sang sanctuary. Yes, we did the Lord's Prayer. Okay, You've heard that old saying says, what's the last sign, the last saying on the church sign as the for sale sign went in the ground beside it? We never did it that way before. Right? I mean, it happens all the time. What, 7,000 churches a year close, only 4,000 open. That's, that's a losing proposition, by the way. And that's what's going on in America right now. Uh, Ryan, who's coming down and helping with us, um, when he went back, one of the five churches that he oversees was closing. You know, And the other ones meet together in this rotation because each little church could not stand on its own. Mm. Was it because they had been caught up in tradition or church ownership? It could have been partial reason after listening to him explain the way the different congregations would interact with each other, not want to do this if they were at the other people's house, and not want to do that if they were at this house. And that's not what it's all about, right? We're supposed to come together as a family, a body of believers to worship, to understand, to learn about the Lord. Hmm. Let me give you an example of how tradition works over generation. It has nothing to do with church. So, how many of us have ever rode on a railroad? Ever rode on a train? Yeah, a lot of us, right? Okay, the U.S. standard railroad gauge, that's the distance between the rails, is four feet, eight and one-half inches. Why an odd number? Because that's the way they built them in England, and American railroads were built by British expatriates. Why did the English adopt that gauge, that size? Because the people who built the railroad first built tramways in England, and that was the distance they used. Why were they locked into that distance? Because that's the distance between two wagon wheels. And so they were built the wagons, and they used the same tooling to build the tramways. 
which was set on a distance of four feet, eight and one half inches. Why were the wagons built to that scale? Because with any other size, the wheels of the wagons would not match the old wheel ruts of the roads. Who built these old rutted roads? The first long-distance highways in Europe were built by Rome for the benefit of their legions. The roads have been in use ever since. The ruts were first made by Roman chariots, four feet, eight and one-half inches. Why was a chariot that wide? Because it needed to accommodate the rear ends of two war horses. And it's the excuse used for over a millennia. So now when you ride on a train, you can thank the folks that were unwilling to look farther than their horses' asses in front of them. That's why a train track is the way it is. And that's how tradition works for millennia, one after another, after another, after another. And we can thank those two war horses, their standard width. Galatians 1.15 says, sometimes you need the Holy Spirit to come in and disrupt the service. Amen? That's what we're learning in this uh, Lunch and Learn. Wow, just amazing stuff going on in there. He fills us with love and truth. We're told to not quench the Spirit, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. It's not to say all traditions are bad. They're not. Second Thessalonians says, Brothers, we tell you in the name of Jesus, keep away from any brother who's walking in idleness or complacency and not according with the traditions that you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we are not idle when we are with you. We gave you ourselves an example to imitate. Here again we see how values are caught rather than taught or just spoken. You need to be the example of Christ to others in the way you live, okay? They don't want you to come up and spew a bunch of Christianese at them, okay? They, they can get that anywhere. But if they see a changed life, they see a life changed like Paul was changed, where one day he was this way and the next day he was that way, like Jamie, right? One day he was this way and the next day he was that way, right? Big difference. Me, same way. One day I was this way, the next day I was that way. That's the Holy Spirit coming in and working on you and changing your life. We're always supposed to be working for the Lord and not fall into idleness or complacency. And if we're not careful, we can let our traditions within a church surface, service make us complacent or idle. We have many uh, Reformed Catholics in here, in the Catholic service, right? Yeah. So, I mean, Catholic service is very easy to get caught up in traditions, right? You go in... You genuflex, you know, you light your candle, you stand up, you're down, you're up, you're down, you read a saying, you know, you, uh, and the priest says the same thing he said last year at that same particular service, and the same one he said at the one before that, that year, you know, and there just is this repetition, and you check all the boxes, and you say, okay, I've did church, I'm good to go, fire insurance is done, you know, end of story. Is that a good thing? No. I love traditions. I love things, anything that we can do that brings the holiness of God in our lives, okay? Uh, that's why I was really hard to go to the Jumbotron, you know, because I'm a big believer in the tactile feelings of hymnals and of Bibles. When you grab your Bible and you read the Word of God out of your Bible, you, you can feel the leather cover. Uh, you can feel the type of paper that it's on. 
even the hymnals when you open them up. You know, it brings to the senses the hundreds of years, the thousands of years that people have been singing these same songs. You know, that's, it's, an, it's a whole worship experience that's brought together. That's why I like a lot of various traditions. That's why we fill the stage with Christmas trees and pine stuff over Christmas, and we do a lot of decorations. And over there in that corner, there's about to be a, we're going to get a little Catholic on you. That's right. We just got stuff in. We're going to make that our prayer corner. There's going to be tea lights over there. You can come and you can light a candle. You can hang your prayer request up. And then the Wednesday prayer group is going to come in and they're going to take those down. They're going to pray over those things for you. Amen. And you can spend some time praying there too. I love that. In our old sanctuary, we used to have candles all over that building. We had a whole candle ministry. We had people that did nothing but buy candles and put up different candle things. But, you know, it all started because the building smelled terrible. But, you know... (laughs) I can remember I was preaching one day, and somebody had brought this candle in and set it over on the, uh, on the piano, and I'm like, ah, oh, I can't take it anymore. Somebody's got to blow that candle out. It smelled just like apple pie. I couldn't concentrate. So we got to be careful that we don't allow our traditions to take the place of genuine worship with the Lord. Our pride can do the same thing. That was the number one problem here with these Jews. They like sitting in the place of prominence. One of the guys who generally sits on a pew right over there where we just removed it, put it over there, he says, ah, you finally figured out a way to get me to move out of my chair. But that's something we do here, right? About every six to eight months, what will I tell you? Change seats. That's right. I don't want anybody ever coming in that door and go, well, I was going to sit there, but I'm afraid I'm going to sit in somebody's seat. Okay? There is no such thing as a soft cushion chair. You know, you come later, you sit on the hard pews. That's the way it works. Plus, if you sit somewhere new, you get to get involved with people you don't know. Amen? The shake and bake isn't so you can turn around and tell your mom, oh, mom, by the way, are you coming over today because I need the, the dishes washed or whatever. It's so that you can say hello to somebody new in the family of God, amen? So those are the kind of things that we do to make sure we don't get hung up in traditions mm. or a place of prominence or let our pride get us in the way. Mm. The Jews believed they had the knowledge that everyone needed concerning Jehovah. How could there possibly be something else without them knowing about it? You know, I have a saying I use all the time. You don't know what you don't know. But men are horrific about admitting the fact they don't know. Can I get a witness, ladies? Are you sure we shouldn't have turned back there? I know where I'm going. You know, I can't tell you how many marriages Alexa probably saved. Sometimes we do things for so long, we're not open to change of how there can possibly be a better way. We think that because we don't know what we don't know, it's, well, it shouldn't be. We're not willing to open our eyes to the possibility of someone showing us something else. So we stay in our ignorance and in our stubbornness. Amen to that. Amen to that. (laughs) 
That's one of the reasons I like so much this new Lunch and Learn. It's showing us something that has been right there in the Word of God the whole time, but we just didn't understand it. That being the seven words of praise. So cool. I'm going to take that Bible study and offer it to all the other little Bible studies that we have in the church as well. So as many people as possible get to know what that is. And then when we've done that, I'll probably bring it in for a two-week sermon series. Everybody will be familiar with it. We'll all be on the same page. Saul goes to the Jews and says, Jesus was right. There is a time. He was right all the time. <coughs> we've been worshiping our traditions rather than God. In doing so, we've not seen what's right in front of us. Verse 21 says, and all who heard him was amazed. <clears throat> That's the thing we're learning in this study, is to be amazed again. Now, as it gets brought to different Bible studies, we're going to find that we're going to have to ask ourselves, geez, do we stay with the tradition, or do we, are we willing to break a tradition or two? Or do we embrace the word of God that we have learned? Verse 22 says, Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by providing that Jesus was the Christ. Now, I want to take you on a rabbit trail here because it's just one of those things. It's really hard to disciple from the pulpit, but I want to take you on this little rabbit trail because there's a part of the Bible that when you read it, you go, where did Saul go? And it's there. You just got to have somebody like these theologians that I read that tells you how to get there. So if you have your Bible, you might want to flip over to Galatians chapter 1 and verse 11 because right there... In Acts chapter 9, between verse 22 and 23, there's a three-year period. Yeah, there's three years in there somewhere, somehow, in some fashion. So I'm going to show you a little bit about that. We're talking about Saul's trip to Asia, and it all centers around the fact that the Lord used this opportunity to prepare Saul. So verse 11 Saul says, for I would have not, I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel was not preached to me, it's not a man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it, how I was advancing in Judaism, beyond many of my own at the same age, my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and called me by his grace, I was pleased to reveal his son in me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem for those who were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia and then returned to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him for 15 days. Amen. So here's the timeline. Saul has an encounter with Jesus, which we know about on the road to Damascus. He receives his spiritual sight. He serves with the brothers in Damascus for some period of time. We don't know how long. We can only perceive then that the Holy Spirit led him to Arabia. Why? That's still a question, but I and many believe it was for a time of preparation one of the statements we read in Acts says Saul increased in strength and was able to confound the Jews. Jesus was preparing him for an independent source of validation for himself, his work, and the gospel. 
If Saul had immediately went to Jerusalem, got the apostles, then started preaching Christ crucified, those in the synagogue and elsewhere would have just said, oh, he's just repeating the same heresy we hear all the time. But Jesus didn't do that. Saul was to bring a whole new level of theology to the table, theology being defined as the study of religious faith, practice, and experience. Saul was about to bring the Old Testament to life with his understanding of it and it being one large pointer to Jesus Christ. Amen? Don't ever let anyone tell you the Old Testament is not valid or relevant. Okay? It is. It's extremely important. The whole thing points us to Jesus Christ. Mm. If any of you have taken any Bible study classes with Pastor Neil, you've heard him say about types, how they show up in the Old Testament, all these types being like Jesus or being Jesus or the work of Jesus. I believe Saul went to Asia and Jesus opened his eyes to all this. I would imagine that if he held a master's degree in the Old Testament theology before, once he came out of that, he had his doctorate. There are times when we all need to go to Asia and let the Lord prepare us. Amen? There's a group of ladies who just went on a three-day sabbatical uh, down to a place that was uh, the title of their study was called Be Still and Know. Okay? We are all called to do that. We're all called to go and be still and know. We have to do that so that the Lord can speak to us without a lot of distraction. Amen? Sometimes that sabbatical can just be for a day. Sometimes it can be for an hour if you can just get alone. If you want to start speaking to the Lord and have him speak to you when you get in your vehicle, don't turn on Pandora or Siri or sports radio or whatever else. Normally we have to turn something on because we don't want to hear what's going on in our head. Amen? Because we start rehashing old problems or we let our enemies condemn us and speak to us and tell us untruths. Instead, get a psalm. Get a psalm. The first verse of it. Get in your car. You know you're going to be by yourself. Turn on your vehicle. Start down the road and then just recite that first psalm. Or sing a song. He's got the whole world in his hand. You, can even, you even sound good in the truck, brother. You know? I mean, you do that and that prepares your spirit. And then open yourself to the Lord and just start talking to him. You know, a lot of you guys, especially you older guys, okay? Sorry, I didn't mean to look at you. <laughs> but, uh, you know, when you come to the Lord later in life where you come out of the Catholic faith, you really have, no one's ever took the time to tell you how to speak to the Lord in a relationship. You know, they've never told you how to do it. So you don't know. All you know is how to say the prayers by rote, you know? And my wife hates it when I tell this story. But I'm going to tell you how I learned to pray. I would get in the truck, and I would be coming from my corporate job, and I'd say, Lord, I thank you for Heineken beer and great cigars. And I was true. I mean, I was speaking truthfully from my heart. I didn't know how else to open that door, you know? I mean, all the people I built relationships with for, you know, the 30 years prior to that, you know, it was centered around cigars and beer, amongst other things, you know, and I'd give up everything else, but I hadn't given up good cigars and beer yet. So I'm like, thank you, Lord, for that. 
And the fact that I was being honest with them and speaking with them and just talking with them like, I, like, like we're talking right now, right? That opened the door for the Lord to begin to speak to my spirit and get me alone and help me become the man that he wanted me to be, amen? Moses had to pitch a tent outside the camp so he could get away from it. Jesus was constantly leaving, going far away, somewhere else. Where's Jesus? Oh, he's off by himself praying again. We're all called to do the same thing. Now Saul, in power after his trip to Arabia, came back and confounded the Jews. Verse 23, when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. That's something, okay? You want to set your standard somewhere? Be so zealous for the Lord and so right in your knowledge of him that when you preach and teach, somebody's willing to knock you off because of it. Yeah, you think, oh, that's not good. Well, it happens every day. We're going to talk more about it next week, just how much persecution is happening out of this country and in this country for those of us who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So there was Saul. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night, but his disciples took him by night, let him down through an opening in the wall, luring him in a basket. Amen. It is now that Saul is ready to meet the apostles, and he will do that next week because he is full of the Holy Spirit, and he has literally been sitting at the feet of Jesus for somewhere between one and three years and having him pour into him. And when he shows up with these apostles, they're going to see the same thing the Jews did. This guy, he's no fake. He knows exactly what he's talking about, and he's prepared to give an answer for the belief that he has. Amen. And we are each called to do the same thing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord God, that we are each called, Lord, to give an answer for the faith that we have, for the hope that we have that is in you. So, Father, I pray that we can do that, and I pray that these words that we go over in these meetings, Lord, help us to understand and bring you into the right relationship with us, or us into the right relationship with you, I should say, Lord. Lord, but that you help us to get past our humanity and, and see our spirituality, to know that we are eternal beings. Lord, help us to live that eternity right now in this place, in every day, and in every way. And the church said, Amen.